We'll begin reading in verse 1, Job 19, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. Then Job answered and said, How long will ye vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. If indeed ye will magnify yourselves against me, and plead against me my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me, and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths." He hath stripped me of my glory, and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone. Mine hope hath he removed like a tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops come together and raise up their way against me, and encamp round about my tabernacle." He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintance are very, verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant, and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despised me. I arose, and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God, and are not satisfied with my flesh? O oh, that my words were now written, O oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen, and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. But ye should say, Why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. And God will add his blessing reading from his word for his name's sake. Could we bow our heads in a word of prayer and let's seek the Lord together. Our God and Father, we, we come yet again to the mercy seat because we need mercy. Help from heaven is the cry for this hour. The Holy Ghost will guard the lips, the thoughts of thy servant. He will only speak the truth and speak it in love, but speak it with boldness, without any fear of man. And Lord, that thou wilt open the ears of each one thou hast brought today to this place. None of us are here by accident. We know, Lord, that all things come to pass according to thy will, and we pray that today you will have a word in season. Speak to us all, for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen. To say that these were hard times for Job would be a great understatement. Probably nowhere in all of his book does he so concisely describe his affliction that in the first 24 verses of this chapter. It's a very painful thumbnail sketch of all that Job had suffered at the hands 
of his acquaintances, his closest friends, his wife, and even his God. The story of Job is one that is rich with some of life's most valuable lessons for the believer. One of those lessons is that no one, absolutely no one, is beyond the reach of the afflicting hand of God. Not even the people of God, not even the holiest of the people of God. God's own description of Job was that there was no one like him in all the earth. Jehovah declares in chapter 1 that Job was a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Yet in this same book we find Job sitting down among the ashes and scraping his flesh with a potsherd, a fragment of a clay pot. The scraping would be to remove the filth that would accumulate from the oozing sores that now covered his body. He was a man of unparalleled piety, a man who had been a man of wealth, honor, and distinction, sitting down in ashes, taking a piece of broken pottery and scraping over his undressed and very painful sores. It doesn't appear that anything was done to alleviate his pain or that anyone came and had compassion on him by taking care of his wounds. It would seem that no one, not even his own wife, showed Job any sympathy whatsoever. His wealth is gone. His ten children have been slain. His health is completely broken. And the so-called comforters come and cut deep into his heart as they come and blame him, saying that the source of all of his trouble is the secret sins that he's been engaging in that no one else knows about but God knows. And now God is exacting justice upon this lying hypocrite. You can begin to imagine the sorrow that must have filled Job's heart and mind. Day after day, hour after hour, the deepest of heartache and no end in sight. And yet God says of him, there is none like him in all the earth. Let that be a source of comfort to any of you who are suffering and there seems to be no comfort, no end in sight to your trouble. Don't jump to the conclusion that God is afflicting you because of some sin, some failure, some spiritual deficit in your life. To do that, it's to play the role of Job's comforters. And you will only add sorrow on top of sorrow if you go down that road. God does not play mind games with his people concerning their sin. I want to say that one again. God does not play mind games with his people concerning their sin. If they have sinned such a sin that is holding back the blessing of God, and he is going to show them that sin and not leave them to play a guessing game about it, He'll show them what's caused the break in the fellowship, what's caused the holding back of the blessing of God. He doesn't play with the hearts and minds of his people. That's not the Lord. But while these first 24 verses of Job 19 capture so graphically the hard times that Job was facing, the next three verses mark a very clear turning point in Job's heart that continues right through to the end of the book. This marks a turning point in the book of Job. Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, 
though my reins be consumed within me. I believe you'll find in those verses what I'm calling Job's resurrection theology. Job's resurrection theology. It's very true that the Messiah was not going to come and die on the cross and rise again from the dead until thousands of years later. But that fact is in perfect harmony with what the Lord did with numerous Old Testament saints when he gave them special revelations and insight into the future, especially as that future related to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that that's exactly what Job has here. He has a revelation given to him by God of that future Messiah who would stand on the earth, who would be alive, raised from the dead, and would be the result of his own resurrection from the dead. So on this day, when the church celebrates the resurrection of Christ from the dead, I want to preach this morning on Job's resurrection theology. You'll notice there are three things. First is Job's corruption. In verse 26, he says, After my skin worms destroy this body. Secondly, we're going to see Job's confidence. Verse 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And finally, we're going to look at Job's comfort. Verses 26 and 27, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Job's corruption, Job's confidence, Job's comfort. Look with me first, please, at Job's corruption. Verse 26, and though after my skin worms destroy this body... Note, please, that the word though, worms, and body are in italics, meaning they're not in the Hebrew. They were supplied by the translators to help us understand the meaning of the text. Literally it reads, and after my skin is destroyed. And after my skin is destroyed. He's referring to the corruption to the disintegration of his body in the grave. Turn back just a page or so to Job chapter 17. He speaks of this again. Job chapter 17 in your Bibles, please. Verse 14. Job says, I have said to corruption, thou art my father. To the worm, thou art my mother. And my sister. He's using the most intimate relations of a family. My father, my mother, my sister. You want to know why not brother? Because the Hebrew is feminine, so it's got a it's got a jive with the feminine, so it's sister. The most intimate relations, father, mother, sister, to describe how he looked upon death, his own death, and the consumption of his body in the grave. The most intimate terms. Close. His thoughts of death and the dissolution of his body were not, they were not abhorrent or frightening to Job. When he thought about his body rotting in the grave, it was not something he dreaded, he was afraid of, or something that was abhorrent to him. It's like my mother, my father, my sister, it's close to me. I embrace it. Does that seem strange to you? Well, it was certainly strange to the ancient Egyptians because they went to great efforts to prevent their dead from rotting in the grave. They were the masters at it. Why did they do that? Why did they go to such lengths to preserve courts? Well, that's because the Egyptians thought that the soul is still with the body. And aware of its condition and its surroundings. 
the same reason the Babylonians put their dead bodies into baked clay coffins, which they filled with honey, which has great preservative properties. Although modern-day embalming in the United States doesn't have its foundation in those ancient myths of the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Chinese, for that matter, there is still a very apparent dread in the thought of the body corrupting in the grave. Bodies are no longer put in wooden coffins, unless you're Jewish, and then... If you're an Orthodox Jew, it's a wooden coffin, and there's no metal at all. It's all wooden pegs that hold it together. No metal. They're no longer put in wooden coffins, but in fiberglass coffins, which are then placed in concrete vaults. I've known some who did not want to be buried in the ground, but insisted on being buried in a mausoleum above ground because they couldn't stand the thought of their body being buried in the ground. But all things being equal, why should we want to preserve the body after the soul has left it? Why should we want to preserve the body after the soul has left it. What does it matter how soon our bodies go back to the dust of the ground from which man was made? If the soul's not there, what does it matter? Why all the fuss and the expense about where our bodies are buried and the kind of casket they're placed in. My siblings and I, maybe a year ago, two years, I've lost track of time anymore, had the uh, obligation of going to the funeral home. My mother wanted all that arranged. She's still alive before her death, but all that stuff settled. And part of the settling of the matter was which coffin. And so the funeral director took us into this very large room with all kinds of coffins. My brother and I had the same mentality. Show us the least expensive one. What difference does it make? She doesn't care. She's gone. Why pay the extra for all the decorations? It's going to be put into the ground in a concrete vault where no one's going to see it. It's only there for show for a little bit of a funeral service, and that's it. Why all the fuss and bother? It's a corpse. Don't misunderstand me, please. In no way am I saying that you shouldn't show any respect for the bodies of those who are deceased. But realize that the respect shown to the deceased is really for the sake of those who are alive, not for those who have died. What effect would all the respect shown have upon the ones who are deceased? It's true we mourn their loss, and rightly so. We grieve that they have been taken from us, and we miss them terribly when they die. And their body is all that's left to us, a body which is soon buried out of our sight. And all we're left with is a grave marker. You see, God designed it that way. God designed it that the human body would return to the dust of the ground from which it was taken. And therefore, if we're going to embrace Job's theology of the resurrection, and that's what I'm calling for, if we're going to embrace Job's theology of the resurrection, we must not look upon the destruction of our bodies in the grave as something gloomy, as something to be dreaded. We should think often about it. 
Our skin is going to be destroyed. We're going to return eventually to the dust of the ground. The scripture is full of reminders of that truth. We're not going to, in this body, live forever. But it's going to die and it's going to rot. It's going to go back to dust. It's so unlike Job's theology to try to shove that out of the mind. It's like my father, my mother, my sister. I embrace this thought. It's something we should look at as part of God's God's wise and gracious plan. Something, therefore, since it's part of God's wise and gracious plan, something that is very necessary. Because whatever God has planned is necessary. Or it wouldn't have been planned. And something that becomes an even greater platform for the, the miracle that will take place on resurrection morning. I tell you, I said the, the Egyptians are the masters at robbing the worms of their prey. Mummy still being found thousands of years later. You tell me which is the greater miracle. Resurrection morning, if there happened, there were Egyptians that were believers. You put that mummified Egyptian next to, well, the dust of the ground of someone who has been disintegrated, gone into the soil, and even through plant growth, consumed by other creatures. And on resurrection morning, they're both brought back from the grave. You tell me which is the greater miracle. The mummy? Not on your life. That those molecules are all by the power of God assembled together and there stands that person brought back from the dead. No, no, you see, this is, this is, this is Job's mindset. As he thinks about his own corruption, it's not something he was afraid of. Not at all. The second thing I want you to notice is Job's, in Job's resurrection theology is his confidence. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know. That is a declaration of something Job firmly believed in. Something he had unwavering confidence about. I know that my Redeemer liveth. One of the things that stands out about Job through all of his ordeals, he had this unwavering faith in God. It was this Job who states categorically back in chapter 13, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. If he kills me, I'm still going to trust him. He was, don't misunderstand me, he was completely bewildered about what God was doing in his life. And on more than one occasion, he complained about it, and he wishes he were dead or had never been born even. But through it all, he kept putting his trust, his hope in the Lord. Through it all. Through it all. It was the same kind of confidence that Job says in chapter 23. I don't know where God is. I have searched and searched for him, but I can't find him. But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's confidence. That's a steadfast faith. Job had it. Here in chapter 19, this child of God declares yet again, I don't know what God is doing. I don't understand this, but I know. I know this. My Redeemer liveth. As I said, this was a turning point in the book of Job and in his life. Job is sure in the first place. He is sure that there is a Redeemer. No doubt.
resurrection theology. Here we are, resurrection Sunday. Are you sure, are you sure, are you confident there is a Redeemer? The word Redeemer, the Hebrew word is goel. It speaks of a kinsman or a near kinsman. Sometimes it's called kinsman redeemer. And the, way, the reason that the word redeemer is added to it is because it was the near kinsman who had certain obligations to his family under certain scenarios. In the Old Testament, there were cases involving property, slavery, and even murder where the role of the kinsman redeemer was critical. For instance, if an Israelite had to mortgage some of his property because he fell, or all of it for that matter, if he fell into poverty, financial reversal, the near kinsman was to pay the price for that property and to buy it back. This was his heritage. This was his heritage. But only the near kinsman could do that. It was the near kinsman who was to seek to avenge the murder of his family member. Remember the cities of refuge? You could flee if that, because of the law. You had as a near kinsman this obligation. You hunt that murderer down and you bring him to justice. You slay him. The near kinsman did that. He had the power to do that, the authority to do that. If a man fell into debt and was sold into slavery because he couldn't pay the debt. It was his goel, his near kinsman, who, if he was able, had the responsibility to pay his debt, to redeem him. If a husband died without fathering any children... That man's brother had an obligation as if he was the near kinsman, he had the obligation to marry his wife and raise up a seed to preserve the seed, to preserve the heritage of the family. The most famous scene in all of Scripture regarding that was Boaz and Ruth. Right? Ruth's husband dies childless. Boaz, come to find out, was a near kinsman. She comes up to that, to that threshing floor, uncovers his feet, lies at his feet. He wakes up. There is Ruth at his feet. Cover me, she says, because you're a near kinsman. He says, yes, I am, but there's one nearer than me. And we've got to settle this matter. Next day, the nearer kinsman, the nearer kinsman had a right before Job, before Boaz did. He didn't want it. Must not have wanted to marry this Gentile. But Boaz did. Picture Christ now. Picture Christ. He would gladly take in the Gentiles. He would gladly marry himself to the Gentiles. The near kinsman redeems Ruth, marries her. To fulfill the office of kinsman redeemer, he had to meet three requirements. He had to be near of kin. He had to be able to redeem. And he had to be willing to redeem. Job believed that he had a redeemer that meant all of those requirements. His statement here is no doubt messianic. I know that my redeemer liveth in the midst of all of his sorrows. And all of his sufferings, and my, they were many. In the face of all of his confusion and, and consternation about what God was doing, Job still believed with all of his heart that there was a kinsman redeemer. He believed that there was one who would deliver him, who would rescue him, and who would deliver him from all of his troubles. In other words, here when he was... After ten times he said, you've come and you've thrown your words in my face. I wanted someone to pity me and all you've done is attack me. Job says, I'll tell you what I know. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that my kinsman Redeemer liveth. And he will avenge me. He will stand up and vindicate me. And he will deliver me from all of these troubles. I know that. There is a Redeemer. His eyes were on Christ. 
Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that what these Old Testament saints were always looking for anyway? Isn't that the promise that was given from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God promised to Adam and Eve there was going to be a seed that would come and it would destroy the head of the serpent? He would be the one who would reverse the curse. That's what they were looking for. I know that my Redeemer liveth. There is a Redeemer. What a picture of Christ. The Redeemer. The Redeemer has to be near of kin. And so Jesus Christ became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. As Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 puts it, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He had to be near of kin. So much so that he's not ashamed to call us his brethren, Hebrews 2.11. He's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. These are my family. These are my brothers, my sisters. Jesus Christ saying that. And Christ certainly has the ability to redeem because he is mighty to save. That's what the scripture says. He has the power to deliver us. I'll tell you this. He has the power to deliver us from the guilt and the grip of sin, to deliver us from the thraldoms of sin. He has this ability, this divine power, to deliver us from the chains of Satan, from his tyranny. He has the ability. I don't have it. I can't redeem myself, and you can't redeem. People talk about redeeming themselves. It's not going to happen. You can't redeem yourself. You can't deliver yourself from the thraldoms of sin, from the guilt of sin, from the grip of sin, from the condemnation of sin. You can't deliver yourself from the wrath of God. But there is a Redeemer who can. He has that ability. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And was there ever one who was so willing... To be our kinsman redeemer. I mean that really. That gets me excited. I don't know what gets you excited. I, I, I don't know what really. Stirs you up in life. I, I don't know what really. Wants, makes you want to tell other people about something. But this. It's not only that there is a near kinsman who is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and that he has this power to redeem, but he is willing, oh, so willing to redeem me, to rescue me, to deliver me from all of my troubles. I don't have to try to persuade him to forgive me. I don't have to try to coax him, to coerce him, to twist his arm, to pardon my sins, to pay the price. He was quite willing to leave heaven. Quite willing. It was all voluntary. Nothing forced upon him. There may be some who are akin to us who would, truth be known, rather not be kin to us. They would rather that we were not their relatives. They would look down upon us. Wouldn't even acknowledge to others that, oh, this is my nephew, this is my aunt, this is my uncle, this is whatever it is. They have no choice, however. They can't do one thing about it. But Jesus Christ, it was his choice. Voluntarily, he left the splendors of heaven. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5? Talking about the husband and wife, for this man, for this Call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Nobody put a gun to my head to leave my mother and father and to join myself to my wife. 
It was all voluntary. I was glad to do it. I was quite willing to marry her. And then Paul says this, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He gladly left his father to join himself to his bride, his church. Voluntary. Now that, that thrills my soul. Job was sure that there was a redeemer. Are you sure? Are you confident that there is one and only one who is the redeemer of sinners? Job, secondly, is sure that this redeemer is his. That's something that's a step further. I know that my Redeemer liveth. It's not enough to believe simply that there is a great Redeemer and that He is the Redeemer of so many people. He must be my Redeemer. He must belong to me, which means that I belong to Him and I need to know it. I need to know it. Jesus is my Redeemer. Not a redeemer only, but mine, mine, mine. Do you know that? Then you say that he's my redeemer. I'm one of his redeemed. It won't do to say, I hope so. I I hope that he's my redeemer. Because I am in a mess of trouble if he's not. Oh, you're dead right. You're in a mess of trouble if he's not. You die. And all you're going out on is a, I hope. I trust. I trust he's my redeemer. I don't want to be on my deathbed and say, well, I hope. I hope I'm saved. I hope I've got a redeemer. I want to be able to say like Job As far as he was concerned, death was around the corner. I know that my Redeemer liveth. When you've lost everything like Job, how vital it is to your comfort and peace of mind to be able to say, I've lost everything, but I haven't lost Christ. He's still my Redeemer. I have nothing as far as this world's concerned, but I have Christ. He's mine. And no one can ever take him from me or me from him. Job is sure in the third place about something else. His Redeemer is alive. I know that my Redeemer liveth. How much Job was given knowledge, was given regards to the Messiah... How much he knew about his death and resurrection, I, I don't know. I'll find out one day when I have a little chat with Job and glory. But right now, I can't say with any 100% certainty that he had this clear light as we have the clear light about Christ and the death and the resurrection and the empty tomb. But I have no problem with the idea that Job was referring here to Christ as risen from the dead. But the main point here is that Job's confidence, his confidence in the midst of his suffering and his sorrows was in a living Redeemer. And do we not make a special point to remember that fact each year at this time? Oh yes, every Lord's Day is a celebration of his resurrection from the grave. This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's a reference to the resurrection, the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead. 
So every time we meet, we are actually celebrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's why in the early church, on, this, on the Christian Sabbath, when the worshipers would come oftentimes to houses, they greeted each other with those that exchanged, the Lord is risen. The other one said, the Lord is risen indeed. That was the common way of greeting saints in the early church. Every, every, every Sunday. Every Lord's Day. That was, that was just part of the warp and woof of their being, their thinking. He's alive. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. He's not in the tomb. He's alive. But our great need is to keep a living Redeemer uppermost in our hearts and our thinking. This is Job. This, this is his theology. This is what he's thinking. I want you to put yourself, try to, just for a little tiny bit, brothers and sisters, to put yourself into this man's shoes. Ten children gone. His wife, no sympathy. There's no, his servants don't even pay any mind to him anymore. He's despised. His best friends are telling he's a hypocrite. How do you keep on going? I don't, I really don't comprehend the depth of that man's trouble. But how in that state do you keep on going? I know that my Redeemer liveth. His mind was on a living Goel. A living near kinsman. That Christ lives assures us what he said about life and death, about heaven and hell. That's what the New Testament says. Listen, listen. Acts 17, verse 31, Paul says, Because he hath appointed, God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is God declaring he's the judge of all the earth and there's a day of judgment coming. The resurrection affirms that. It assures us that. Mark it down. If you've never heard it before, the resurrection of the empty tomb declares a judgment day is coming and Christ is going to be the judge of all the earth. He will judge your soul and mine. That Christ is alive assures us that what he came to do, he actually did. He accomplished all that he set out to do. What did he, what, what, what did he come to do? Christ came to atone for sin. He came to cover sin so that the wrath of God would not be executed against your sin and mine. He came, he died, he suffered, he was buried, he rose again. Why? So that he could declare to us, affirm to us, assure us that we are justified by God. That's what the scripture says. Paul says it, Romans 4.25, he was delivered for our offenses, that's delivered to death, and raised again for our justification. Not to accomplish it, but to declare it, you're righteous. The empty tomb says it. The empty tomb declares he achieved what he came to do. Now, I can have confidence in that. I can't have and I don't have any confidence in my ability to obey the Lord in all of my efforts to be holy. To try to do what's right. I'm all too well acquainted with my sin 
my failure. I have no confidence, therefore, in the flesh. But my confidence is in this truth. The tomb is empty. And that declares Christ did exactly what he came to do. To redeem my soul. To make me righteous in the eyes of God. There is wherein lies my confidence. That's my resurrection theology. It was Job's. Is it yours? Is it yours? Do you have this confidence? Serious questions. It's questions like these that really matter, you know. All the other things that people fuss their heads about, in the large scheme of things, it's a waste of time. Not this. That Christ is alive assures us that he lives to intercede for us, to deliver us from all our troubles. He ever liveth to make intercession for all those that come unto God by him. So if I come unto God through him, I have this assurance. He is there living for me in heaven, interceding for me as my high priest. He's alive. That our Redeemer lives assures us that we live also if he is our Redeemer. John 14, verse 19, Because I live, ye shall live also. We don't have to try to sustain this life. It's his life in In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is Jesus living his life in me and it will never be taken from me. You'd have to die first and he can't. Because he can't die, I can't die. I won't suffer eternal death. If I have to suffer eternal death, Christ does too. And that can happen. Finally, in Job's resurrection theology, you'll see Job's comfort. Job believed that his Redeemer, verse 25, shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and in my flesh I shall see God. He was looking for a day when that Messiah, when that Christ would come a second time, a second time, and stand upon the earth as the judge of all the earth and the Redeemer of God's elect. He'll stand on that mountain. He'll stand on that mount outside Jerusalem. <laughs> And all the forces of hell will gather against him at one final great battle. As old Luther put it, one little word from his lips shall fell him. Oh, this is my comfort. My life right now, he says, is so full of sorrow. There's so much misery. I've lost all my children. My wife has no time for me. I'm despised by everybody. But I know there's coming a day when my Redeemer will stand on the earth and my eye shall see him even though my body has been consumed by the worms. Job is saying, I am going to be resurrected again and I will see him with my own eyes in my flesh. I shall see him. Ooh, isn't that comforting? No matter what sorrow, no matter what toil, no matter what pain and hurt we have to face here, we know there's coming that day when we will see Jesus face to face and we'll be like him and we'll see him in the flesh. New bodies. Won't that be wonderful? The old bodies are wearing out. Joints are aching, slowing down. Disease settles in. But on that day, new body. I don't know when that's going to take place, but I know it's coming. 
it may be as such a long time away that I would have already gone to the dust of the ground and I would have been the fertilizer pushing up flowers or grass somewhere. Maybe some animals have come along and eaten the grass that I have fertilized. But on that day, in a moment, I'll be brought from the grave, standing alive in this flesh. With mine own eyes, he said, this will not be secondhand information. With my own eyes, I am going to see my Redeemer. Therefore, don't you want it to be a case in this life? That's where your eyes are mainly taken up with, looking for your Redeemer. Your eyes focused on Jesus Christ, not upon people, not upon problems, but upon him. This is Job's resurrection theology. I pray it's yours. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. O oh God and Father, we, we thank Thee for Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. We thank Thee He has come for us gladly, willingly, laid down His life without a moment's hesitation. Grant, Lord, we pray, that on this day we remember His resurrection from the dead. Our eyes will be upon him. Keep us, Lord, always remembering that our Redeemer liveth in good times and bad times, for he is our hope. Dismiss us now with thy fear and favor upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.